0: If you'll all turn with me in your Bibles, please, to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. And I will read verse 5 before we pray. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Let's pray. Father, we come before you tonight to study your word. Lord, it is a a privilege and an honor to do so. Lord, we thank you for the missionaries that have come uh, to tell us tonight about a, a need for the gospel so far away. And, Lord, we know that uh, many people have not heard the gospel, such as these in Nepal. Um, But, Lord, those of us who do know the gospel need to continually, continually examine ourselves. Help us tonight to see how we need to do that, Lord. Show us directly from your word. Be with us in this time of study. We pray, Lord, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight, we're going to talk um, about what I call the armor of assurance. There are many people in Christianity, American Christianity especially, that believe themselves right with God, that believe themselves saved because they were told so by a preacher who should have spent more time studying the Bible and less time preaching. Our subject tonight has angered many, many churchgoers, uh... Many of the older people, many of the youth. The people that have become the most angry at hearing this message have been the parents of youth, I've heard. In my own experience, i found that many parents, if they can get some sort of claim out of their children, that they profess faith in Christ, that it gives the parents assurance and joy. And they take great umbrage that anyone would dare to question that claim. It seems many times within the church that we would rather hold on to a false hope than face the truth. But again, this is a problem with all of Christendom, not just the youth. The churches are full of people that believe that they are going to heaven for many invalid reasons. There are many people who don't want to hear the truth because it will shake up their false hope that they have, that they're going to heaven when in fact they are not. I hear people all over, especially in the jail where I work as a chaplain, they tell me they're saved, and I asked them, how do they know they're saved? Well, because they believe. And no one, no one has ever asked them in their entire lives the second question, the follow-up question. How do you know that you believe? If we were to dismiss the church tonight <clears throat> and send everyone out into every part of the city, we would find a great majority of the people in this city believe that they believe. And we would know that's not true. If we would go to bars and to crack houses and all these other places, we would find people who would believe that they believe, but not just there. The pity is that we would find many in churches that believe that they believe. And the question is, tonight, that I want us to look at, how can we be sure that we believe when so many people say they believe and we know that they don't? How do we have assurance? How do we have real assurance in America, I think the problem stems because we've combined two doctrines, and as a result, we've lost both of them. The first one is commonly called the security of the believer. That means that every person who has truly believed in Jesus Christ for their salvation is born again, and they are secure. The very God who saved them will keep them saved. That's the security of the believer. The other doctrine that we don't hear much about is what we're talking about tonight, the doctrine of assurance. It kind of gets pushed off to the side, um, But it's very, very important. It's true that every believer is kept by the power of God. That's the doctrine of security. But the doctrine of assurance is this How can you be assured that you're a true believer? How can you know that you are a true believer? I've had people tell me, Well, I just know that I know. And then I tell them there's a way that seems right to men, but it leads to death. I've had people tell me, Well, I know in my heart of hearts that I'm saved. And I say the Bible says that the heart is deceitfully wicked. It goes beyond human knowledge in its wickedness. So do you really want to trust something that's proven faulty? Do you really want to trust a heart that can be wicked? I've even had people tell me, well, I know I'm saved because the preacher told me I'm saved. Wow. Since when did men have such authority? And then the worst of all, I know I'm saved Because I have walked, past tense, with God. My dear family, let me tell you this. If you are not walking with God right now, right now, you can have no assurance that you've ever been saved. We're not teaching here tonight that if you walk with God, you're saved, and you stop walking with God, you lose your salvation. You can't lose your salvation. That's not what we're talking about. What I'm talking about is this. We have assurance that we have come to know Christ, not just because one time we repented, but because we are continuing to repent today and every day. It's not just that one time we believed, but that we are continuing to believe today and every day. It's not just that one time we walked with him in the past. We continue to walk with him today because he who began a good work will surely finish it. And then we have our text. 2 Corinthians 13.5, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you fail the test. Here in 2 Corinthians, <clears throat> the Apostle Paul is having to write another letter to the church at Corinth, uh, taking them to task, and he's taking on the accusations of a church that he himself planted and that he, that he had seen fall into moral decay. The same church was now questioning his apostolic office and his credentials. And instead of defending himself yet again, he goes on the offensive. He says, you know I'm who and what I say I am. I've proven it over and over and over in your lives as a church. I don't have to defend that. But while we're at it, why don't you examine yourselves to see if you are who you say you are. Paul had a way of turning the tables on people doctrinally. And that's the surface understanding of this passage. But the larger message for the church then, and also for the church now, because it's applicable at all times, is that we should examine ourselves against God's word to make sure that we are who we say we are in Christ. <clears throat> Paul had come to several churches, many of them professing Christ, and yet walking in worldliness and carnality. And what he doesn't ask them, ever, is, when did you first ask Jesus Christ into your heart? Not once do we see that. He didn't even ask about the conversion experience. He cuts through the nonsense right to the present tense. Test yourselves in verse 5 to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. Let's say we have a person uh, who for three or four years seems to have walked with God. Uh, seems to have loved other Christians, endeavored to pray and to know the word of God and to congregate with other believers. And then they begin to fall away. Gradually. Gradually. They begin to walk away. They begin to allow the world and sin and other things into their life. They begin to enjoy the fellowship of the wicked. With someone like that, you don't go to them and say, you know, you're a Christian and you really need to avoid backsliding. You go to them and say, you've made the profession of faith you've declared among many that you were a believer but now you're beginning to live like an unbeliever it's very very possible that you never knew him that up until this point it's all been a very convincing work of the flesh because if a work of God doesn't continue it was never a work of God to begin with because God finishes what he starts does that sound harsh does it sound unloving? Does that sound like a statement that is offensive and will make somebody crawl into their save zone? I'm here to tell you tonight that it might be the most loving thing that you could ever say to someone. Because it points out what sin has blinded them to. That their mortal soul is in danger of hellfire. Even though they don't believe that it is. <clears throat> As a pastor, I can do no less. It's actually my job description to tend the flock in such a way. To know them and to be able to correct with the staff and drive off the wolves with a ride. And sometimes, most times in fact, the wolves are in a man's own heart. I cannot be afraid to stand in the face of evil. For the sake of being everyone's friend or to avoid saying unpopular things. Or so that people won't say bad things about me. Or else what good am I to the Lord's word? Thomas Brooks The very imaginative, creative Puritan wrote, the minister who is afraid of the faces of men is the murderer of the souls of men. So what does Paul say to these people who are living this way, counter to the profession they made? He says examine yourselves, test yourselves. Let me tell you something, heaven and hell and eternity and death may not mean and may not mean much or be very much a reality to the world at this point. But it is most certainly to me, and I'm sure it is to you. I couldn't care less whether or not your bank account is bulging if you have gobs and gobs of self-esteem. The one thing, the only thing that might keep me up tonight and make me lose sleep is the fact that many people here and abroad, people I know and love, will die and go to hell. That should be on every heart of every Christian all the time. Paul says, test yourselves. Test yourselves. It's not some whimsical thing. It's not something to worry over for a day and then take a nap and get over it. We're talking about eternity. That's something we can't even wrap our minds around because we have finite minds. Is it well with our souls? Do we have blessed assurance? If we were to test ourselves in the light of Scripture, would we be found whole and complete, born again, kept by the power of God? So we're going to test that. If you haven't tested yourself, I would urge you to do that strongly. Stop relying on emotions. Stop relying on how it feels. Do I feel like a Christian? Stop relying on what everyone is telling you about your salvation. Stop comparing yourself to other people who call themselves Christians because people are imperfect like you. And the fact is that the great majority of people in America who call themselves Christians are lost. I read an article. Um, someone in the Southern Baptist Convention wrote, and it said, an "Excerpt from this is this: If we take seriously what the Bible says about Christianity, we would have to say that less than ten to fifteen percent of all our membership is even saved." And don't think that that just applies to the Southern Baptists. It applies to all of us. It applies to the church. So Paul says again: Test yourself, examine yourself, not just a cursory examination. Don't just hear the words in here and walk out there and allow Satan to take them away from you. While you're here and while Christ is present and while the word is preached, examine yourself. A few weeks ago, I gave the closing comments at our Iwana graduation and I concluded by telling all the parents that the world wants their children. That the world wants to chew them up and spit them out. The world is driven by Satan, that the world's mindset is Satan's mindset, that Satan wants your children. The fact is, Satan wants all of us. Satan is deadly and patient, just like the lion he's described as in 1 Peter 5.8, and that lion waits outside these doors, crouching and ready to devour. So while you are here, and while Christ is present, I beg you, examine yourselves. When I was a kid, we had this little section of woods where we'd play war behind my grandmother's house on Wilmington Island. Uh, There were a lot of ditches, sort of runoff ruts in the ground. Uh, Some of them would be trenches. Uh, Some of them would be, we would pretend that they were bottomless pits. On just about every tree, and I think everybody, everybody knows growing up here in the South, just about on every tree, there were vines. There were these thin, sort of supple vines that would hold our seven and eight year old body weight. And we were sure of it. And even so, we would grab the vines, give them a yank. Sometimes they would fall out of the top of the tree. They'd pull free, but sometimes you could hang on to them. And they were sure, and they were steady. And they weren't frayed or broken in any way. Why did we do that? Why did we test them? Because if we swung out over one of the bottomless pits and the vine breaks, you lost to the pit. In the same way, that salvation that you hold on to, that you trust in, it might be like that really strong vine. But it might be like a very, very weak vine that grows there. It might be rotten. It might be hollow. It might not hold you. And when you swing out into eternity, many of us are going to swing out on nothing stronger than a rotten vine. And when the fires of hell roar, will fall and be lost to the pit. Take what the word of God says about a true Christian. Examine yourself in light of it. And if you fall short, repent and believe. There throw your mercy yourself up on the mercy of God. Cry out to him until true changes in your life from his power alone. <clears throat> we have sort of a silly brand of Christianity in America. Repeat these words after me. Fill your name in the blank, sign a contract. A drowning man can't save himself from, thir- from, from churning 30-foot swells in the deep of the ocean. He has to be saved. Someone else has to throw him a life raft. Someone else has to go in after him would probably be a more adequate way to put it. He can't throw one to himself. He can't swim against the frothing destruction all around him. He can only cry out and throw his hopes on someone other than himself. We must put our hopes and pin all of our hopes on Christ and Christ alone. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved, Acts 4.12. No, we must rely upon God and cry out to him in our lostness to be made whole. But how do we examine ourselves? How can we test our life? How can you test yourself tonight to see whether you're not truly a Christian? As with everything else, everything else, we go to the word of God. Flip with me over to 1 John. We're going to be spending the majority of our time now and on the 25th when we do this again um, in 1 John. So 1 John chapter 5. 1 John might actually be my favorite epistle. It's excellent. We have the blueprint for a Christian right here in 1 John. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13 These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. In John chapter 20, the Gospel of John chapter 20 verse 31, John tells us why he writes his gospel. He writes his gospel so that men might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, <clears throat> that he's the Christ, the Messiah that they might have eternal life through him. So then why does he write this epistle? Well, he tells us right here. These things, this epistle, this letter, I have written to you who believe, he's writing to Christians, who believe in the name of the Son of God, those of you who profess Christ, why that you may know that you have eternal life. We're talking about assurance. This is why he's written this epistle, to give people who are already Christians, professing Christians, Christians that he was over at Ephesus, assurance so you want to know whether or not you're born again read the book of first john because the book of first john is made up of a series of tests and like i said tonight on the 25th we're going to be going through those tests but i want to tell you something and i want to make it very very clear as we go through these things do not listen to your heart I really, really hate that Disney princess nonsense. Your heart is wicked, God says in Jeremiah, and deceitful. Why in the world, again, would you ever listen to it? No, listen to the word of God. Don't listen to what your mom and dad tell you about your salvation once upon a time. Listen to the word of God. Don't listen to your favorite pastor, seminary professor, or Christian radio personality and what they say about your salvation. Listen to the word of the living God. Then compare that with what only you and God know about your secret life. All right, why, am I, why are we talking about a secret life? Because many of us externally conform to God's law. That's why. We externally conform to God's law, but not internally. It's not inscribed on our hearts where it should be. And in that secret place, in that secret life, only we know who we are. Others, they don't know. Church members, loved ones, co-workers, family, they don't know, not for sure. But when you're in there by yourself in that secret thought life, that's the person I want you to compare to the Word of God. Not the one in here that's dressed real nice. Not the one in here that's got religious makeup on, maybe. Or has a bulletproof smile and a firm handshake. I want you to... To compare the word of God to the one you are when no one is looking. The one no one else but you knows. You take that person and you compare them to the word of God. Now you might be thinking, Matt, that's a little intense. How would you expect me to be, say, if I saw a train speeding down railroad tracks. And I look up to see my daughter playing on those railroad tracks. Should I just whisper in her ear, come on now, sweet, let's get off the tracks. The train's coming. Should I just calmly and kindly make a come along motion with my hand so I don't make a big fuss? And this, the entire time the whistle is blowing and the horn is sounding and the tracks are shaking and her life is at stake? We're talking about people we love and people we care about. People we know are not saved. And you know who those people are in your life. It may be you. I don't know. Or would we would you expect me to scream out no and run and grab my daughter from those tracks? How is someone supposed to preach about this? I, I don't know that there is another way to preach about this very subject. But let's take that secret life of ours, let's compare it to the Word of God. First John chapter one. <clears throat> In verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you. That God is light. And in him there is no darkness. No darkness at all. What does that mean? As in all of John's writings, he sort of kind of leaves things open. I believe that though, as we look through this text, you're going to find out that there are two things that John is saying. First of all, whenever we're talking about light, and we see this in uh, John chapter 3... In his gospel, we're talking about holiness and we're talking about righteousness. God is a holy God when we talk about light. He's a righteous God. He has no sin. He has no flaw, no shadow, no speck of immorality in him. God cannot be tempted. We can be tempted because there's still an element of evil in us that is drawn to evil. God has no evil in him. He doesn't have that problem. Evil cannot draw him. He disdains it. He despises it. He's holy. But that's not the only thing I think John is talking about here in this verse. John also, when we look at any verse, we want to look at the historical context. John is dealing, the problem he's having in the church, is he's dealing with a group of false teachers. False teachers that basically are telling everybody that God is sort of this nebulous, sort of shadowy God, a hidden figure. And that while they may know some things, they don't know everything. It's all very esoteric very mysterious. It's hidden and dark and only some elect few know everything. These people were called the Gnostics and they were a cult. And I believe John is contradicting these false prophets by saying that God is light. And he means this. God has revealed to us, to you and to me, who he is He's revealed to us his will. He's made it all very clear. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning. God is not, he does not obscure things. He gives it to us very, very clearly. How would that change everything in America if the media truly believed that? What kind of God do we have in America? What kind of, what is the God of the politician in America? The kind of God, it's a God you can pray to, but you can't define him. It's, the, it's sort of nebulous God, like the Gnostics were talking about. It's a God that can talk about uh, you can talk about in a political speech, as we've seen recently, but you better not define him. You cannot define what his will is because you can't define him. That's a good God to have for many people. Why? Because there's no accountability to anyone for anything, let alone a God, let alone a creator. You don't know who he is, and you don't know what he wants, so you just do whatever your carnal, wicked heart wants to do. That's the history of idolatry, in a nutshell. That's a very convenient God, and that's the kind of God some supposed Christians have. But John counters this, and he says, No, my friend, God has told you exactly who he is, and God has told you exactly what he requires of you. He's not a hidden God. So let's go to verse 6. Follow that up with verse 6 for the first test. We won't get through all the tests tonight. might even be a little over, but we won't get through all the tests tonight. If we say, verse 6 of chapter 1, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. He says this, if we say that we have fellowship with him, what does that mean? If we say we are saved is what he's talking about. If we say that we know him, if we say we abide in him, that's what, that's what he means here. If we say we have fellowship, that's what he means by fellowship. <clears throat> For a lot of years in America, because of certain seminaries and pastors that have propagated this belief, we have been taught and led to believe that this verse, and really all of 1 John, is talking about the difference between a Christian who walks in communion with God or a Christian that does not walk in communion with God. They take this text to mean that if we say we know him and yet walk in darkness, we're just a confused Christian. That's baloney. And it's also horrible exegesis. What this text is saying is that if we do not have fellowship with him, if we say we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we what? We lie and do not practice the truth. If we say that we are a Christian and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying. Now some people say, yeah, but you don't know my heart. I know that I'm saved. In my heart, I know. Again, with the heart. I couldn't care less about your heart. Because that's not what John said. And God is speaking through John. God says if we say that we have fellowship with him, that we are Christian, and yet we walk in darkness, we are a liar. Not confused, we lie now what does it mean to walk in darkness well first of all we need to understand what darkness is it's the opposite of light if we say we're a christian and yet we walk what does walking mean in in the greek the word is uh, to walk around a style of life how we live our life if we say that we're a christian and yet our style of life contradicts everything that god has told us about himself and contradicts god's will then we're a liar that's what it means That's what this text is saying. It couldn't be any clearer. So I repeat in verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him, if we say we're a Christian, and we walk, we lead a style of life in the darkness, we lead a style of life that contradicts the attributes and the nature of God, what God has told us about himself, meaning our style of life reflects nothing of God's character and our style of life totally contradicts what God has said to be his will then we're a liar when we say you're a Christian we lie there's no ifs ands or buts here it is cut and dried God has been very clear that's why that's why religion is so dangerous we see all these little silly little boy men out there preaching that if you repeat a prayer You're going to heaven, and the moment they pronounce that upon someone, darkness falls over that person. Nothing and no one can convince them otherwise. They live their lives any way they want to. But it's time to cut through that fog with a deeper, greater light, and that light is the word of God. My friend, John's is saying, John is saying that if you're a Christian and you, yet your style of life, the way you are, does not reflect his character. And the things you do go against his will. He's telling you that you are a liar when you say you're a Christian. So that's, that's verse 6 or verse 7. Let's look, at, uh, let's look at the next test. Verses 8 and 9. I might run a little bit over here I Hope you guys are okay with that. <clears throat> verses 8 and 9 of chapter 1 of 1 John. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us all from all righteousness. There have been strains of Christianity, and mar- or I probably should say marginal Christianity, down throughout the history of the church that believed in something called sinless perfection. That's precious. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible teaches that even the most mature, the most godly Christian is still susceptible to sin. And the men that I have known, the men and women that I have known that have been the most godly people in my life will claim that very thing. That they are no different. That they are still susceptible to sin. And it's a valuable lesson. What this verse is teaching us is this. One of the greatest evidences that a person has truly been born again, that a person is truly a child of God is that they will be sensitive to the sin in their life and they will be led to repentance and confession of that sin. I'm going to repeat that. One of the greatest evidences that a person has truly been born again is that they will be sensitive to the sin in their life and they will be led to repentance and confession of that sin. What we're seeing is the difference between the lost and the saved in a congregation. A true Christian is sensitive to sin. They are sensitive to sin. When was the last time any of us were broken over our sin? Some of us may not even remember. But when we are child of God, guard, when we are a child of God, he guards us. He talks about his jealous love for Israel all the time. Is it not greater for the church? God guards us. My daughter, she was very little, uh, was once caught with her hand literally in the cookie jar. Jessica had made a big batch of chocolate chips, and they were cooling on the plate, just on the kitchen table, just within reach of a three-year-old. That is sweet temptation right there. My wife had told her not to touch them because dinner was on its way. And just turned her back. Nora comes back into the kitchen five minutes later, weeping and almost screaming. we thought she'd hurt herself. But she confessed through hitching breaths and sobs uh, to the stealing and the eating of a cookie. And of disobedience to her mother. And she was crying. And there were no chocolate streaks on her face. No no telltale smudges on her fingers. There was only conviction of sin, of wrongdoing. She knew it was wrong. Her conscience was sensitive and it told her it was wrong. And she didn't listen to it. And she disobeyed her mother. And we never would have known had she not told us. At three years old, how much more should a fully adult Christian who has been walking with the Lord for many, many years be aware of and at most broken by their sin? In the last few years, will give you another example. the last few years, my friends and I we were Christians. We were starting to watch a certain TV show that's become insanely popular over the last few years. I'm not going to tell you what it is because it's awful and I wouldn't advocate it to anyone now. <clears throat> we'd get together, and we didn't know this at the time. Um, it was a uh, science fiction fantasy type show because there's uh, nerds of the same stripe flock together. Um, we'd get together. We'd eat dinner and uh, we'll we obviously with our wives as well, everyone would get together, and we'd start to watch this first season. And it, it grew so debauched within two episodes, within two episodes. First episode was a hook to get you in. Second episode, it was insane. <clears throat> um, we were all uncomfortable watching it, um, especially with each other's wives in the room, and we never watched it again. I understand it's still going. I know it's insanely more popular than it was before, And I know many Christians that watch it, dare I say, religiously. Now, we couldn't stomach it. Is that because we're pious? Is that because we're holier than thou? No. It's because God guards his children and makes his children sensitive to sin. Are you sensitive to sin? Does it lead you to confession? Because that's what it should do. Sensitivity to sin should lead to action. First to confession of the sin, then to mortification of that sin in our bodies. In a word, death of that sin. Is it a struggle to do that? Is it a fight? Is it a war? You bet it is. Paul says it's nothing but war for the Christian. The fight is on two fronts against two foes. The first enemy is the sin that resides in the flesh. To give in to that sin to lose, is to lose a battle. Christ has already won the war, but we still have to fight the battles until we reach Christ's side in either death or rapture. The second enemy is something a little more nebulous, a little more intangible, something just outside the edges of our senses. That's something is called the spirit of the age, this world mind that is driven by Satan himself. It corrupts. It spins beautiful lies and seduces. It makes promises that come... Not with strings, but with chains. The enemy drags wishy washy Christians and spiritual fence sitters away from where they should be and into the maw of that great dark war machine. And it chews them up and it spits them out. Onward Christian soldiers indeed. I was once asked in the jail how a truly Christian man can fall into grievous, grievous sin. And I said, He doesn't fall into sin. No man falls into sin. He slides there like everyone else. Are you sliding into sin? Are you doing things now, beginning to, gradually, that you wouldn't have thought of doing a month ago? And little by little by little, you know what's going to happen. You'll keep going, and it'll be evidence that you lost. And if God pulls you back, it'll be evidence you saved. And you might say, oh, man, you don't know me at all. I don't need to know you. I know the Word of God and what it says, and I know it's the same for everybody. I want to read a quick passage to you. It's one of my favorite in all of Scripture. Isaiah 66, 2. For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and trembles at my word. This needs to be our attitude. Has it ever been your attitude? God says, do you tremble at my word or do you look for loopholes around it? Do you excuse your sin? Do you avoid God's word because you know it's talking to you and talking about you? I had a guy in my first year at the jail in the chaplain's dorm tell me, Chaplain Matt, I appreciate you teaching us and all, but I don't need it. I don't sin. So I looked him up and down in his green jump sheet. (coughs) And I said, okay, sit down with me. And we opened up the first John, chapter 1, verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And I said that God is calling him a liar and a fool. And worse, God says through the Apostle John that this man was only fooling himself to believe otherwise. Come to find out his mother was a pastor, and her hero was Joyce Meyer. So shocker that this guy was so misguided... Um <clears throat> we will pick up, I think, on the 25th uh, with the next test, and that'll be in First John chapter two. It's running a little bit late tonight, so we 'll get into some more of that uh, week after next. <clears throat> My purpose tonight it wasn't to cast doubt on your salvation. To point a finger and say that one person or another person isn't saved. That's between you and God. That's for you and God to sort out. I can't see your heart. He can. All I can see is your fruit. And the same is true for you. All you can see of me is my fruit. But fruit can rot easily, even on the vine. Our works can conceal the rot of pride and anger and resentment and jealousy and arrogance. It's an entire harvest of iniquity. My purpose is and was to get you to examine yourself and to begin in 1 John to show you how that's done so that you can face this world that is driven by Satan. We need to be doing this with our children as they continue to grow in Christ. We need to be able to face a world driven by Satan, safely inside the armor of God's assurance I want us all to have joy as assured believers and for that joy to be so infectious that people are banging down those doors back there to get in here and get some of it. But family, we fool ourselves with false assurance when Christ isn't the center of our lives, the driving force in our lives, and the very hope of our lives as we pray together. Oh, Father, forgive us when we fail you which is often forgive doubts we have about your salvation of us there are so many things that we face in this war slings and arrows of the enemy that seem to pepper us every day chipping away at our faith our sense of security our joy so help us not to rest on our laurels on any accomplishment that we may think gives us assurance point us instead towards you And rest us there within your promises and yourself. And discipline us to examine our armor, Lord, so that assurance can truly be ours. And peace can reign in our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. For it is in his name, his precious and holy name that we pray. Amen.